My text is in the book of Revelation and the sixth chapter and verse 17. Revelation 6 verse 17. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? I'm sure that you are all familiar with that verse and have heard it read many times. And yet every time we read it and we hear it read, I'm sure that it affects your heart. It is bound to do so. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand in such a day as that? We are so full of our own days that it is so easy for us to forget that great day which is referred to in scripture here the day of our God. And it seems a strange thing that we never seem to learn the lesson of the brevity of our lives and the uncertainty of our lives as well and the uncertainty of the affairs of men. The Bible often compares our life to so many things in Psalm 103 and in other places too uh, that we are like the grass in a field the wind passes over it, and the place thereof shall know it no more. In Psalm 90, if you remember, there's that very telling phrase that we spend our life like a tale that is told. Like reading a story to a little child, or telling a story to a group of young children. And then all too quickly the story comes to an end, and our life is like that. It seems to be as if we were going to live forever, and there our days seem to be rapidly coming to a close. One man expressed it like this. He was looking out at the receding tide at a place called Marazion in Cornwall, and he said these words, swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. He compared our life as the tide coming in, then going out. As we come in, the brief time that we seem to play on the high tide mark, that is our life, and then it recedes, and our life is gone. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. And he at that time was captivated with something of the greatness of the immutability of God, of the unchanging character of God, of he who never changes, who ever remains the same. This immense God and the creator of vast creations and everything in the palm of his hand and this little planet that we call Earth, in its little solar system, in its particular little order of things, and yet everything to God is known and upheld by his mercy and by his grace. This great and this unchanging God, so vast, so great, so big, so immense. And we, 
so very small, so very, very weak, so frail in our bodies, and so brief is our time on the platform of our age. In this vision, we are presented here with, with God, with this great God that we would worship here this day and honor this day, this God who is perfect in all his attributes, this eternal and this glorious being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this God. And then we are told this brief little statement that he has a day, a very special day, for the great day, for the great day of his wrath has come. And at such a time as that, who shall be able to stand? That's the question, and it is a question in the scripture here. A question to myself, a question to everyone here in this congregation here tonight, that when we consider that when God brings everything to a head and the culmination of all things, when that takes place, how shall we fare? Will we be able to stand? Will we live and look on God? Will we be lost or will we be found? Will we be those to whom he will say, Depart from me, cursed, I never knew you? Or will, he, will we be those to whom he will say to enter into the everlasting kingdom of his Son? Bound to be one of the two. There is no middle area at all. And every one of us here tonight will either be in one position or the other, either lost or found, saved by the grace of God, or lost eternally from the sight of God. We are told here of this day that we see each day comes by and we think tomorrow will come, if not for us, for somebody else. Then next week will come, then next month and the following year. And so the centuries roll on. And yet the Bible tells us that there will be a time when there will be an end of things. It will not be ordained by the Kremlin or the White House. It will be ordained of God. The great day of our God when he will say stop to every business transaction, to every pleasure in the midst of it, to every sin in the indulging of it, whatever we may be doing, there will be that time when there will be a halt to all that and it will have arrived, the great day of the wrath of our God. Let me read you this sentence. Thus under symbolism, John sees the entire godless world seized with sudden fear. He sees them terror-stricken and fleeing from something far more terrible than crumbling mountains and falling rocks. They even seek safety in death itself. If only death could come to them, John shrinks. John hears shrieks of agony uttered by thousands of voices, kings and slaves, princes and servants. They are all caught in the same self-inflicted agony of despair. The dreadful wail is heard. Mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of the one sitting on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For it has come the day, the great one, the great day of his wrath, who is, has come and who is able to stand. The day of grace is closed forever. I can remember in my previous, not the church where I am now, the congregation now, but in the Welsh congregation in West Wales and the revival people, uh, when they prayed, they had many 
many telling phrases, uh, scriptural phrases too, uh, but phrases also that have become part of the prayer life of, of the, the village and of the land. And they would say, have mercy upon us, O God, while still it is a season of grace and a day of repentance. Very much aware that there is an allotted span of our life, yes, but an allotted span for this aged, weary, tired, running out of resources world that we are living in. And today we are even more aware by things that we hear that the Bible knew in any case that it seems as this world isn't able to cope anymore or able to manage anymore. And many people begin to wonder. But the question here mainly is this, you see. Will I stand, will you stand in that day, in the day of God's wrath and his righteous wrath at such a world as this? How will it be as the mountains crumble, as the heavens seem to collapse, as stars and galaxies seem to be lost and fall in a terrible calamity? Where shall I stand in the face of that great God? That is what has been brought to us here in symbolism too and yet there is a reality maybe the symbolism itself falls far far short of the reality of what it will be like the first point i'd like to bring to you is one that i'm sure that would not be popular today throughout our land but i'm sure that it would be acceptable to us here tonight too and that is a simple statement the fear of god do you fear God? I know we can say that God loves us and we love God. What is your attitude to God? Do you, do you fear God? Do you remember the expression of our fathers used to use about Christian people? They used to describe them as God-fearing people. They had assurance of salvation. Their sins were forgiven. They were, they were uh, indeed bound for heaven. The inheritance incorruptible was theirs. And yet they were described as a people uh, that were a God-fearing people. A great awe and a respect for this God who is the creator of all things. This God that they might say that we dread thine eternal years, O everlasting Lord. In this vision... We are presented with stars falling, the sky rolling up as a scroll, and land masses sliding down. And it seems that any material stability seems to be quite impossible. And you can imagine men and women clinging to this, uh, clinging to, if you like, actual rocks and mountains, or, or clinging to some little virtue that they think they have, clinging to relatives, clinging to friends, clinging to anything that they can lay hold of. But nothing... Nothing can hold them. Everything slips out of their grasp. May I illustrate this in a little way that seemed to be very real to me and to our family at the time. I come from a part of North Wales called Gwynedd. And it is a mountainous area. It's an old volcanic area. And ever since a child, I can remember that every now and again, we would have earth tremors. I don't know if you have them in Scotland or not. I know, don't know, but I know that we have them there. But every now and again, we do have one that classes itself as, as an earthquake. And about a year or so ago, I don't live there now, but my daughter, husband, family live there. 
Uh, and they were telling me, it did come in our news, and I don't know if it reached as far as this, uh, these earthquakes are, are given numbers. Uh, and it was in number six, whatever that means, I don't know. But it meant it was equal to one in another land where 10,000 people or so have been killed. But this particular earthquake, its center was just half a mile or a mile offshore. Uh, and the difference, of course, in the solidarity of the, of, of the houses. Uh, and my, my, my daughter was saying, it was the strangest experience. It was about one o'clock in the morning, and it seemed as if the, the whole house and the village lurched. And there was a terrible silence. And then there was a sound of voices, people running out of their houses and running into the streets. And then there was a, a kind of a, a tremor and a strange thundering sound, as if it were in the bowels of the earth. And then another tremendous lurch. And then chimney pots fell and walls cracked and a few walls in her house as well. And she said it was the most terrifying. It only lasted, I don't know how long, 10, 15, 20 seconds. I, I cannot say, maybe 30 seconds. But for however long it lasted, it, it seemed as if everything around was giving way. And you could not have your feet on any solidarity. You could stand on a rock and that rock gave. You could stand on the street and that lurched as well. There seemed to be nothing that was safe. And that was not a great earthquake. It didn't make the headlines. Can you imagine such a time as this, when God's day will come, when we think of wars and rumors of wars and holocausts and diseases beyond the telling and things that frighten and alarm us this day? Yes, they are alarming things and we do live in frightening days. That also is true. But more than that, I fear God. More than that. Oh, I know there can be the most dreadful wars. I realize that. And I realize there can be terrible catastrophes and dreadful diseases. I know that can be so. But more than all that to me is that everything is the hand of our God, our great and only God, Jehovah, King of kings and Lord of lords. And when his day comes, there will not be a paper capable to have headlines. There will not be an airline able to maintain its news. There will not be a television vision line able to bring a picture for they will not have the ability to do so for everyone shall see and know the greatness of our God and the wrath of our God he has but to move his finger that's all he has to do the immense and the great God that we worship only has to move a shade towards us and we will tremble and melt in fear and find no hiding place do you believe that he who created can bring it to an end? Do you believe? In this chapter it says in verse 15, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. Can you imagine in reality now, uh, whether we are bringing symbolism here with reality too as well, they both are there, that here is the day of our God, here is the culmination of all things, here is our blessed Savior in the splendor of his second coming, here is a might of God appearing, uh, and here is all time as he's standing still, uh, and we stand before God and we there his gaze is upon us and if we are not the Lord's what a terrible thing and if you now are playing with God and 
not realizing such uh, verses in the Bible that says, today is the day of salvation. Why does he say that? Because you do not know if you have a morrow or not. But in that day, where shall I go? Where shall I hide? What shall I do? How shall I cover myself? Is there a mountain? Is there a virtue? Is there anything of mine? There's nothing. We cannot hide. Cannot hide from him. But an atheist might say, that has got nothing to do with me. It makes no difference whether he believes in God or no. He has to stand before his maker. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's the situation. Naked and exposed before him with whom we have to do. There is God. Perfect. Absolute. Immense. Glorious. This God. Here am I. With an immortal soul. The date of my death also now is have no particular relevance. But here is my immortal soul. And there is your immortal soul. Hiding in this tabernacle of flesh that I have. And you in yours. Peering through our little eyes. Listening through our little ears. And there is our innermost being. Answerable to God. How can we ignore our maker? Our souls are incapable of death. Think, my friends. Your body can die, but your soul cannot die. And let's come back to the verse. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? The important thing about this day, uh, and all the great and massive events that will be taking place, uh, described here, and I'm sure much more than the description itself, uh, and if this is symbolism, then greater than the symbolism, uh, and more dramatic and more powerful, and the voice of God, and the trumpet of God, and all these things that shall take place. But the point is this. The second point I have for you, the face of God, the God with whom we have to do. Do you take him seriously? The God with whom we have to do. Why is this issue so terrible? Well, it is because of the very character of God. He is not an easygoing, as if he were a pleasant and an easygoing grandfather uh, who just uh, winks at the sins of generations uh, and doesn't bother the iniquity of other people. He's not like that at all. There is no age that belongs to him. He cannot be described in that way. We dare to call him father, and we can call him father so that our understanding can be helped in that. But look at this great God, this unchanging God. He is not young. He's not old. He's not middle-aged. He is. Do you remember how our blessed Savior talked about himself? Before Abraham was, I am. There's your glimpse of eternity. Before Abraham was, I am. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Dwelling in eternity and in glorious splendor. And righteous and pure and clean. And constant, a holy God, the eyes of God. You know, as children, when we had done something wrong, I could not bear to catch my father's eye. 
and he would always know I'd done something wrong because I would avoid looking at him. I, I couldn't, I felt he knew. He didn't know, but I felt he knew. But that is only on an earthly sphere. But the eyes of God, what, they, what must they be like? We are told here in Habakkuk, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. Eyes. Why has he eyes like that? Because of all his attributes. Of all those that are communicable, those that are incommunicable. Of all his attributes, he chooses one to wear as a crown. And that is his holiness or his righteousness. It shines and it sparkles from Genesis to Revelation. That he is pure and that he is righteous and that he is clean. And that he is always so. How to face that God. With my little span of life. With your little span of life, I have to face that God. He knows. He knows my thinking. He knows my mind this moment. He knows yours. We know in Psalm 139, wherever I might try and hide, wherever I might try and go, be, behold, he is there. There is an escaping of God. He, he knows my mind. You remember when our Lord, our blessed Saviour, in the Gospel, was talking to people that something that seemed to have a tremendous effect upon people, uh, especially, I was thinking now, of the woman of Samaria, that when she went to the men, uh, and, uh, men of the village, and told them how she had met uh, what she believed to be the Son of God, the Messiah, uh, this is what she said, I met a man that told me everything that I was, he knew everything about me, uh, and that's sent a shudder through her being. He only has to look upon us and he hardly needs to do that and he knows my mind and my motives and my thinking and my heart and my emotions and my aspirations and my low motives and my lusts and my devious nature. He knows everything. Nothing is hid from him, from my mind or my heart or my will. He knows me altogether. But this is the thing. At the end of the day, there can be nothing more terrible than to be rejected. Rejected on any level in society is a dreadful thing. It grieves us dreadfully when we're rejected. But to be rejected, oh God, for eternity, forever, ever, 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 no pardon, no reprieve. What must hell be like? Must there not be so much of this in hell besides the torments that are there and degrees of suffering that are there as well? If only I had, if only I'd listened, if only I'd taken note, if only, if only, it, it must be a place where the word if must be said a million, million times. If only. But why is it so terrible to face God? He has a law. The Lord Jesus Christ brought the Ten Commandments together in a lovely sentence and I read to you from Mark. The first of all the commandments is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord and thou shalt love the Lord thy God 
with all thy heart. What do you love? With all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, this is the first commandment uh, and the second is like namely this thou shalt love thy neighbor how lord thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself and oh how we love ourselves thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself there is none other greater commandments than these to love god to love my neighbor but oh lord i fail we fall short of the glory of god and because of that we are rejected but then we hunt in our lives and say uh, surely there is something and have your hand you may have said it yourself or you may be saying it tonight even in your own, own heart I'm not so bad uh, I come to church on a Sabbath evening uh, I sometimes come in the morning I occasionally uh, will even think or consider of a weakness uh, I, I may do that if I, I feel that I I'd like to do that week and I feel rather good about things but I'm as good as anybody who goes to every meeting uh, I have as high a standard as anybody and there we are we say I do this I do that I'm honest I wouldn't do anybody any harm what we are we doing we're depending upon what God to describe as filthy rags he says our righteousnesses are as filthy rags you know what that is don't you uh, think of a, a, a filthy cloth that has been in the dirt and every kind of mire that you can think of uh, and an animal a dog or something drags it into the house the house is clean uh, and you get uh, the some pole or handle of a brush or something and you hold it as far as you can because it stinks it stenches and it is full of disease and horrible things and so you hold it uh, yards away from you uh, and you get the door open and you take it away from the house and you throw it away uh, and that is how God describes me that's how God describes you but God they are my righteousnesses this is the best I have to offer I've done my best and he says to me do you know what it's like to me it's thinking in my nostrils it is like filthy rags oh Lord even my best my best and what about my worst what about my mind what about the indiscretions of my life? Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, to face God. How can I? At that time, we are told in Scripture, you were without Christ. Listen to this. When we're in that situation, when we dare not face him, at that time, you are without Christ. Without Christ. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, we are foreigners to the family of God. We are not family. And strangers from the covenant of promise, there isn't a positive promise in the scripture that applies to us. Having no hope. And without God in this world, having no hope and without God in this world, there it is. Without Christ, then this end without God and in the sense of what do I find aliens strangers and without hope why without Christ I am without God and without God I am without hope and I cannot face him how can I play about with such a God as that without Christ without God 
I used to be a schoolmaster. I used to teach art. And uh, some lessons you saw how were they called uh, art appreciation at that time. And you'd bring the great artist and you'd have a print, a large print, and you'd show it to the children. And if there was some story attached to the painting uh, or the history of the artist, you, you would give them that. And it's a great painting on the Day of Judgment. And they didn't take a great deal of notice of it, but I was fascinated. I was not a Christian then. And I tell you what fascinated me. There was God, there was our Saviour, uh, the triune splendour, and there were a group of angels with a huge, massive book. It represented the book of death. Uh, and here uh, was another group of angels with a smaller book, uh, and this was the, the book of life. And the ones that the, the, I read to you at the beginning of, of the names, if you remember, uh, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so they who would be in heaven, their names would be there. If you're saved here tonight, your name is there. If you're not saved, it is as if your name is going to be in the other one. But if you're saved, your name is in the Lamb's book of life. But there was one part of the painting, although it's only a print I saw, it was a man upon whom judgment had been pronounced and the picture needed no words to say that to him had been issued the words depart from me he cursed I never knew you and this face was kept in his hands just so and his eyes staring what an artist this person must have been to be able to convey even as far as a print because in those eyes, never before had I seen despair, utter desolation, for there would be no hope of pardon, because God is absolute wisdom, because God has absolute knowledge, as God is perfect in his judgment, and so when his judgment is in that way, it will be utter desolation and no hope whatsoever. And I can remember even then, before, long before I became a Christian, the fear of God uh, trembling in my heart at the thought of the day of judgment. And where would I be? Would I have eyes like that? Would I have such despair? as there would be in those eyes would I be saying if only I had found God in some way but at that time I knew not how to find him although I was immersed in religion but if you know there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth not any hope of that neither whatsoever worketh abominations or maketh a lie but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life then lastly, the favour of God. How does a man, how does a woman find the favour of God? Are there any of you here tonight who as yet are not in his favour? As yet, you are potential candidates for that book of darkness and death. Or is your desire that it might be that your name might be written in the book of life and that you might give cause in heaven tonight for we are told, aren't we, that when one sinner repenteth, do you know what happens? That the angels cannot contain themselves and heaven rejoices 
give cause for heaven to rejoice. That is the object of the preaching of the gospel, to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, how can I find favor with God, a miserable creature like myself, and my mind and my heart and my motives, and he who knows me altogether? Is there a possible way? And God awakens you. We are running out of time. You are. I am. This world is running out of time. And the day of his wrath is rapidly coming nearer and nearer. The question comes, how can I find favor with God? Let me take you to another picture here in the book of Revelation. Um, there again in visionary form, but very telling. In chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. What are these? Which are arrayed in white robes. And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So we are given, as it were, a glimpse there. Who are those people there? Who are they? Oh, they were on earth. Well, how have they got there? Uh, look at their robes, they're white. How can they be so pure? If they're human beings like ourselves uh, and live a life of human beings like ourselves, how, how is it that they are there? Who are they? How came they there? These are they who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Then, Lord, there must be a way. There is a way. There is a way. Let me read to you a very precious verse, a beautiful, beautiful verse. It's in the second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 21. You know it well. For he, that's God, for he hath made him, that's Jesus Christ, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. May I stay there just for a moment and so that your soul, if your soul is seeking God tonight, if you're on the brink of faith, then I would plead you by the strength that is in the Holy Spirit that you might let your soul reach out to the things of God. Listen to this verse. It is the word of God and may it not be in word only, but in power, much assurance and the Holy Ghost. He, God, hath made him. Who is he? The only begotten Son of God. What is he like? Who knew no sin. Who knew no sin. We do. In our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. We do. We are experienced in these things. Who knew no sin. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. What's he doing? He's making it so that this sinless one is counted as a sinful one. He is not sinful. He never became a sinner. But our sin and our iniquity and our uncleanness and our filth and our cruelty and our malice, all of it and the dreadful abominations that there are there in Scripture, some too dreadful to relate, but there too and potentially and actually in our lives imputed to him 
imputed to him. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why, God? Why? That we, here we are, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, that we sinful little creatures might have a miracle of grace take place in our eyes. What is all this that is happening there? It is a description of Calvary there, for there the sin that is imputed to him, the penalty is paid in full. In full. May I illustrate that for it to be very, very clear? I, I can remember six nuns coming to our congregation to hear the gospel one sabbath night and my wife and i were invited to the place that they lived a convent that they lived and we were invited to coffee we were there about two and a half hours i don't think we got round to the coffee because of the conversation mother superior was there and it seemed to us you see uh, we talked together and we agreed so much. We agreed in the being of God. We agreed that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. Believed in all these great doctrines that you and I believed. And I was wondering, well, what is this? What is this? How can I reach this? And yet I know, what is it? Because they are agreeing too much with me. And then I made a little phrase like this. After having made that phrase, both my wife and myself were outside the convent in less than five minutes. And I meant it most innocently. And I said these words. Isn't it wonderful, Mother Superior? I said to her. Isn't it wonderful to think because of the penalty paid for sin on Calvary and the righteousness that we are dressed in by faith in Jesus Christ that we will go to heaven and there was a silence and this is what she said excuse me are you suggesting that when we die we're good enough for glory do you see what she was doing that we must be purged we must be purified after this life but I said to her all I can say to you is this we are complete in him the vilest offender whoever we are the sacrifice on Calvary covers all of it not partially but all of it my sin or the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more I got no further. I don't know if I made any impression. I don't know. But I know I believe what she failed to believe. That we are complete in him. How can I be a recipient of that forgiveness? Will it be by efforts and purifying? How can I be a recipient of a robe of righteousness, the life of Christ counted for me. Through faith. Faith and repentance. Faith is a beautiful thing. 
Without faith, we cannot see God. Faith, if we have not faith in one another, or partial faith, there is no relationship. Even that makes sense to us. But this faith, listen to this faith. By grace I saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It comes from the heart of God. It invades my crying and my needy soul and my awakened spirit. It invades my soul. It takes me to Christ and ultimately it takes me home to glory. That's the quality of that faith. Faith to believe and to repent. And when that happens, we turn away. We repent, we turn away from the ways we knew and we turn our direction Godward. We are children of God. There's been some writing going on in heaven. Heaven has been rejoicing for every sinner that has repented. It is the most wonderful thing that can ever be to come from darkness and from the destiny of eternal damnation even though the pleasures of sin for a season are pleasurable enough and enough religion to keep me happy is comforting enough partially anyway. But how can it help me when it is a matter of the day, the great day of the wrath of our God? Nothing but a complete salvation. Faith in my Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ will count in that day. And that we shall be able to stand. Have you got faith like that? Let me illustrate to close. Every minister has many lovely illustrations. I never like to expose anything with a soul, but I think when it is made far enough away without any names, that that is not in any way wrong. This person would give me permission anyway. She's now in glory. There's a lady in my congregation. I wouldn't say that she would be well known in the congregation, she was in the prayer meeting, she was in all those things that are right, she was a Christian. And she became ill. And really there was no one, well I suppose there was, but there seemed to be no one to care. Sometimes to call. And how she managed to, to make herself a cup of tea, I don't know, between all the aids and assistances and one thing or another, I don't know. But eventually she was in hospital. And you know, it was a lovely time to visit her. There was a psalm she loved, Psalm 46. Uh, and if I'd go and see her, I can remember the occasion like this. I went to see her and I said, well, what, what has the Lord been telling you today, my dear? And she said, you know. You know the verse, be still and know that I am God. You know what he's been teaching me today, she said. He's been teaching me. I'm proud, she said. A proud little lady. He's been pre teaching me to be still. In my circumstances, not to fret about the house, not to worry about uh, how it's getting, what's happening, but to, to be still. Not to fear for the future, but to be still. And then the next day, I go and see her, and I say, well, what have you been telling you today? And she said, say, well, today has been rather different. She said, it's be still and know. I said, know what? Oh, just to know that this is the right way. Just to know that I belong to God. Just to know these things. And then the next day, 
Be still and know that I am God. And she was triumphant to that one. The thought, you know, she was saying, just to think, here I am in this little war for, for elderly people, and here I am so poorly, and I don't think that I'm going to get better, she said. But you know, I'm still inside me. A lovely stillness, a lovely peace. Be still, and I know that he is God. Well, that's the kind of fellowship I had. Then one day I was there, and she... Uh, she was in a coma and um, she came round and she was so excited there's some nurses and a doctor so near her and she was so excited because you see they were, they were all in whites there and the lights were bright and she really believed that she had arrived in heaven and there was a radiance in her face and her eyes were shining and she was delighted and then suddenly the smile faded but she's a very mannerly lady and she said oh pastor she said I'm terribly sorry I didn't mean to show that I'm not glad to see you. I, I really didn't, she said, but you know, I thought I'd gone home. She really believed, didn't she? She really believed. God was merciful to her because within the hour he came to her and gentle death at last for heaven awaked her. And to me, it is always an inspiration to, to think of that person. And I, when I think of faith, uh, faith is believing. It, it is a quality of faith. Uh, it is a divine. Peter calls it, we have obtained like precious faith. It takes me to Christ. It, it brings me to the benefits and the efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven because of the merits of Christ. It puts me right with God. Heaven rejoices. But heaven is my home. And our names written there. And in that great day of the wrath of our God. Yes, there will be stars tumbling and galaxies falling. Yes, there will be the rumbling and the crumbling of mountains. Yes, all that will be true. And greater beyond any descriptive words that any language can borrow. But in the midst of all that, what shall the believer hear? A welcome voice. And a place prepared, an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, belonging to a kingdom that cannot be moved, belonging to a kingdom that no earthquake can touch, belonging to a king from whom no power in hell or in earth is able to separate us. Because there was that moment of faith, Oh God, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Are you prepared for that day? For the great day of his wrath has come. And who shall be able to stand? Will you? And you? And you? And you? be able to stand and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying 
neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away we stand in him let us pray Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, we ask thee to look upon us in mercy. We come to that throne of grace, a place where we obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We ask thee, O Lord, to look upon our immortal souls and grant, O Lord, that thy touch of grace may be upon many. Open the eyes, enlighten the eyes of understanding that men and women might see and in seeing, believing and in believing coming into that relationship which is forever oh may the irresistible grace of our god reach out to many for thy name's sake amen <laughs>